And so the thinking is, how can an artist think about the work of city government in new ways and bring this perspective of an outsider, but also of the, an artistic process where they're questioning, questioning, testing, iterating, trying things, refining, going back, so that the creative process can infuse government with new thinking. Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Julie Burroughs. Julie is the Principal Cultural Planner at Metris Arts Consulting and has previously served in high-level cultural planning positions for the City of Boston and the City of Chicago. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Courtney. So I was poking around Metris's website and I noticed that earlier this year you posted a cultural planning manifesto. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was my culmination of experience having worked on creating two cultural plans for two different cities and then spending much more time actually implementing those plans and gathering up my thoughts on what works and what doesn't. And now as a consultant, hoping to create more cultural plans, how can we do things better? The field has evolved, but not a lot of people are actually writing about cultural planning. And so I think there's a real disconnect, especially in the planning world, about what is cultural planning and how to do it well. And especially today, how to do it with an equitable sensibility about planning and about inclusion. So you mentioned you were instrumental in creating cultural plans for two cities in the United States, both of which I would argue are well known for their cultural history and contemporary culture and arts scene. Those were Boston and Chicago. And I believe each of those uh, were milestones, maybe for different or similar reasons. I'd love to hear about the process and um, how they came about and especially any sort of war stories you have. Yeah, for sure. Both had origins in a similar phenomenon of a new mayor being elected and cultural policy being put on the agenda during the primary and election process, mostly by advocates. Advocacy really works, is what I tell people, and they made it part of the election conversation. So soon after Mayor Rahm Emanuel was elected, there was a mandate to do, in the transition plan, there was a mandate to do a new cultural plan. And interestingly, this, this was not the first cultural plan for Chicago. There was a cultural plan in 86, which was a result of the new mayor, Harold Washington, wanting to do a cultural plan. And so this is a very common phenomenon. Uh, we're seeing it now, I think, with a new mayor in Chicago again, that there's a renewed effort to look at what are we doing? Is it effective? Let's have new plans, new policies. Same thing in Boston, which never had a cultural plan. And the municipal infrastructure for arts and culture was disinvested over the uh, tenure of the previous mayor who had been in office for many, many years. So there was a real desire to 
create municipal funding for arts and culture, create municipal supports that really had never been there in Boston, which is surprising because Boston has these incredibly well-known, globally renowned cultural institutions, Boston Symphony, Museum of Fine Arts, Boston Ballet, but there was really no investment from the public sector. And there was no investment in individual artists. And then there was a big divide between the mainline organizations and the scrappy neighborhood-based sort of ethnically diverse uh, organizations as well. So in the case of Boston, they never had a cultural plan. And in the case of Chicago, it had been over 20 years. Talk to us a little bit about the typical timeline for a cultural plan and what it's like when essentially you're starting fresh. Yeah, this is something I actually wrote about in my cultural planning manifesto, and I have very strong opinions about. Uh, I've not only created two cultural plans, I've read many cultural plans, and I've exchanged experiences with many of my peers, especially the arts commissioners in major cities and smaller cities who've created cultural plans. I always want to know, what are you doing to implement your plan? That's what takes so much longer after you have the plan. It's very typical to see a cultural plan cover a time span of 10 years. And the truth is it does take time to implement projects. But I think that the time year, the 10 year time horizon is actually a little bit flawed because it isn't fresh after 10 years. I think five years is a much more realistic time frame in which to plan for arts and culture specific policies, programs, investments. The cultural world is moving really fast. Digital technology is transforming things. There's new trends, there's new forms, there's new expressions. So it's very different from a traditional urban plan or like a comprehensive plan. And my theory is that the 10 year time horizon really was taken from comprehensive plans where you'll see very typically it's mandated to happen every 10 years. I really think that a cultural plan only stays relevant for, I think, a maximum of five years. And then you're much more within the political administ administration time frame. Four years, maybe eight years, lots of places have term limits. And what I'm finding is that cultural plans and many other plans as soon as there's a new administration, new leadership, they cast aside the work of the predecessor and they want to put their own stamp on things. So there's a political reality that I think needs to be taken into consideration when we talk about how long of a time frame we're planning for. If someone's never looked at a cultural plan, they may think it's just picking out where you're putting public art. Orient us to what are the typical topics and maybe what's changed uh, in the last 10 years or so and what you see going forward. Yeah, a cultural plan typically deals with arts education, support for individual artists, the health of the economy and job creation and support for innovation and entrepreneurs. Often you're dealing with the physical look and character of a city so public art could be part of that, but part of what we looked at in both the Boston and the Chicago Cultural Plan was how to elevate the caliber of design in the public realm, how to make artwork 
part of the thinking of infrastructure, of our public buildings, to have better design and places that engage the public and welcome the public. Other things that might be considered is how to incorporate innovative ideas in approaches, how to incorporate arts and culture into other plans. So how does it play a role in affordable housing? How does it play a role in climate change or mobility? How does it play a role in transportation planning, in health and well-being? I think that's what's so interesting about cultural planning is the ability for arts and culture to play a role in every aspect of our life. It's not just about facilities and buildings and land use. It's really about how people grow and thrive and move through their lives in a, in a thriving, resilient manner. Seems like it may bring together strange bedfellows, but in the best way possible. Is that what you found? Yeah, I think so. And this intersectionality is so exciting to see. One of the things that uh, where arts and planning meet in the strange bedfellow manner is there have been a number of artist residencies in public agencies. And this is something that goes way back to the 70s, where there was an artist in residence in the New York City Sanitation Department. And she's still there. She's been there for 40 years. She's a huge inspiration for me. And we modeled our residencies in Boston on this. And so the thinking is, how can an artist think about the work of city government in new ways and bring this perspective of an outsider, but also of the, an artistic process where they're questioning, questioning, testing, iterating, trying things, refining, going back, so that the creative process can infuse government with new thinking. And in particular, you've seen lots of cities do this. I think Transportation for America actually just launched a program of artist fellows and if you think about, you know, the, the classic example is a choreographer and a dancer is an expert at moving people through space. They're experts at nonverbal communication. How can you leverage that expertise in those tools for the benefit of people who are moving masses and masses of people through space? Kind of thinking about choreographing the movement of the city where there's all these different pieces that have to flow together and fit together with a minimum of conflict, right? They can't crash into each other. So the metaphors are really uh, provocative. And then I think the experimentation is super exciting. So for example, in Boston, we had um, an artist who was from Puerto Rico and she's a dancer and she lives in a neighborhood that's acutely affected by rising water levels and climate change. And she experienced um, the impact of climate change with her family in Puerto Rico and sort of how can we elevate awareness of everyday people of these issues that are affecting them through a, a community engaged process that's creative, that's exciting, that maybe incorporate performance or art making. And the whole thing is to just to think in new ways about intractable, difficult problems. I'm so glad you mentioned the, the creative process and what's different and important about it. I spend a lot of time thinking about what the planning field might learn from other disciplines. And most recently, I've been focused on the public health field. And 
in particular from the arts world, like the graphic design. And it's everything from procurement or how um, the success of plans or projects are measured. And I've discussed on this podcast before the barriers to innovation, uh, experimentation, particularly if the public sector or when the public sector is involved, it's very difficult to sort of fail publicly with a constituency. So I'm wondering if you have specific examples that you were personally involved in or you've observed where this creative process um, has sort of made its way into the planning field. Yeah, for sure. In Boston, we had a team of artists who were part of our planning process, and it was an experiment. And we had an anthropological point of view that the artists were kind of ethnographers, helping get deeply into neighborhoods and see how our process was or was not reaching a diverse set of voices, artists, people of color, people for whom English is not their first language. And it really helped us see our process in new ways and to then iterate and innovate and add to our process to do public meetings in um, spaces where other things were happening. So people didn't have to come to a public meeting. The public meeting could pop up and manifest where people already were congregating or having play incorporated in engaging younger people. You know, we're planning a city that younger people, children are going to populate and and sort of run in the future, but their voices are often not reflected in planning processes. And then also the artists helped us uh, reflect on the process and created artwork based on what they saw. It was pretty interesting. So one of the artists, Heather Capello, attended a lot of the meetings and then was very inspired by something a young person said at a meeting was, you know, are people in City Hall actually going to hear what we're saying in this meeting? So she actually took flip charts from the meeting and a whole bunch of the meetings and designed a wrap for a city fleet vehicle. And then it happened to be an electric vehicle that was parked on City Hall Plaza in Boston. And then it was sort of like a fleet vehicle that you would check out and drive to a public meeting. So the words of the people in the meeting actually showed up on City Hall and then drove around, you know, following people to public meetings um, and city bureaucrats. So it, it was a really cool way to amplify those voices. It's fun. It's playful. It's colorful. But it also was really meaningful about, well, let's literally get the word out on this rolling billboard. So artists can really think of things that aren't in the typical planner's toolbox and help push planners to be more innovative, a little less cautious, take some risks. And I know that this is difficult in the public sector. I was in the public sector for 22 years, super risk averse, right? Trying something new is really scary. But sometimes the artist, they're a little bit of remove. They're allowed to take risks. They're allowed to push the boundary. You know, oh, it's the artist who's, you know, we have the artist. So there's a little bit of coverage for the bureaucrat. And it can be very exciting, but it also can be, you know, artists try things. They're allowed to 
giving them the room to fail, try things, fail, try something else is, is also incredibly powerful. And that's where the residencies that are maybe over a long period of time can be especially fruitful because it is difficult to ask an artist to work within a city bureaucratic um, environment. Another example that comes to mind, particularly these days, is this idea of planners as storytellers. And um, as lovely as that sounds, I think there's a ways to go. And I would imagine a lot we can learn from the art world in this regard. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think back to the traditional planning school education, and there's so much that we don't learn But it's also a different era. It's a different time. I think we all have our social media channels and we've become storytellers and editors and narrators and curators of our lived experience and our urban surroundings or or, or even rural surroundings. So the whole notion of planner as storyteller is interesting. I really hope that the planning um, education is rising to the challenge, even just helping artists know how to partner with partners who might be storytellers, whether it's a filmmaker or a graphic artist or, you know, someone who's creating a dance piece, a movement piece that's narrative of a place. It's super interesting to think about. So now that we've discussed some of the big picture, inspiring, fun parts of it, I'm mindful there's also the nuts and bolts. You mentioned funding earlier permitting. What do people need to know about how to actually get this done? Yeah, I think that sometimes people try to have a rule and a policy to cover everything that might possibly happen before they try things. And that prevents things from moving forward. Oh, the policy isn't done. Oh, the rules aren't done. Oh, everybody has to see it. We have thought of everything that might possibly go wrong. Or it's in the law department. (laughs) Or it's stuck in the law department, right. And the law department might not be well-versed on intellectual property, anything, you know, um, how artists work, artist contracting. Yeah, it, it can be very tricky I'm a big fan of trying things. Limited pilot, let's try it and see what are the the things that need to be regulated and what things don't need to be regulated. You know, do you need a permit to do chalk on a sidewalk? Ridiculous. You should not need a permit to do that. So people get a little bit stuck because chalk on a sidewalk, it doesn't fall into the purview. Oh, we didn't think of that. Creative people are always going to come up with things that the bureaucrats never thought of. That is the nature of innovation. And I think that the city, you know, city bureaucratic structures sort of lag behind. I I remember when I was in Chicago and shared kitchens came about. This was a response to a genuine need. There was no regulatory framework for it. Shared kitchen, what is that? How do we regulate it? And it took quite a while to figure out, you know, different classes of licenses. So I think this is always going to be the tension between planning and creative things. Uh, you know, it's not covered in the building code. And, and what I learned, the hard lesson I learned as a planner was that if it isn't specifically permitted, it's assumed to be prohibited. Okay. When someone, I pushed and pushed and pushed and finally a zoning administrator said that to me, I was like, wait, what, what, what? Oh, that's the mindset. And so when you do think of something creative, and artists are always going to be pushing the the definition, 
it, 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 there's just always that tension and that lag. So I think that one thing planners can do is think about solutions. What are creative solutions? Is there a temporary permit? Is there a one day thing? Is it something that is, you know, provisional? Does it come under another purview? Is it, you know, can we have a class A and a class B of licenses? Can, can we figure out ways to, to innovate within regulation or, or to just remove does that really need to be regulated? I think that that's one thing that arts and culture can push us to consider. I, I think so much is overregulated in, in our cities. I'm glad you mentioned shared kitchens because it's a great example or illustration of a new idea that can check a bunch of boxes related to a city's overall goals, right? Economic development, entrepreneurship, uh, neighborhood reinvestment, sort of like a, a, a duh moment. Yeah. But um, obviously easier said than done. Yeah, and, and lowering, lowering the barrier to entry for new businesses, right? Because all this food prep, it's really expensive equipment, but it's much more efficient that there's one facility that 50 different businesses are using instead of equipping every business, all those 50 businesses with, you know, up to code, up to code sinks and, and stainless steel supplies and proper sanitary storage. And so it's, it's also really efficient. And if there's mentoring and coaching and small business loans and, and the whole, a real incubator program, I mean, it can really lower the barrier to entry to, you know, people of color, women-owned businesses in, in really disinvested areas. My firm does a lot of work in the mobility space, um, and we have public sector clients, including, you know, departments of transportation. And I was struck one day with the idea of the work we were doing in pedestrian and bicycle uh, safety and outreach planning that here we were asking the Department of Transportation essentially to do a campaign when they're structurally not set up to do that. And so I'm very mindful of the examples you shared of where these issues intersect um, and how it's easy maybe to identify the shared goals, but how it can break down in the process when um, you're asking large organizations to pivot or be nimble, and they may not be set up for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially departments of transportation, which is why it's so exciting that Transportation for America has embraced this arts uh, innovation uh, program. It's very difficult, you know, if they've been, if their paradigm has been throughput, and levels of service and very engineer driven and very hardscape and infrastructure focused and signals and, and potholes. It, uh, yeah, potholes, you know, it, it, it gets disconnected from people, right? It's people who are moving around. It's not just cars and trains. It's not just roads. It is people and how people live and how people want to live. And I think this is a real failure of planning that is very widespread is this disconnect from people. And the other thing is that, that I feel so strongly about is the disconnect from creativity. Planning is a really creative field. 
You know, you're problem solving, you're creating cities, you're transforming cities and places and communities and people's lives. It's so creative. And we don't talk about planning this way. We don't think about planning this way. We've sort of um, technologyed out all the creativity and all the creative energy, and it's gotten so technical and so and so removed. So I, I do think that this is a way to infuse back the humanity and the creativity into different aspects of planning, and, and transportation for sure needs it so much. Switching gears just a bit, will you share with us what it was like to transition from the public to private sector of planning? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's it's still new transition for me and I think what my long time what my long service in the public sector has given me is a very unique perspective as a consultant we have a lot of public sector clients so now we're working for the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts I know the work of an arts council I know the challenges within that agency of working within the bureaucracy and I can give that perspective to my clients. And so it's, it's uh, you know, I can tailor my services to them. I think what's great about being in the private sector now is just the nimbleness. You know, we can change on a dime. We can partner with who we want to partner with. And we can be flexible and uh, adaptive to really think in new ways and help our public sector clients think in new ways. You mentioned early on that this all comes together or doesn't when it's time to actually implement a plan, which most planners can relate to. Can you share with us where the field of cultural planning is on that issue? There are ideas you have that you think need to be embraced more broadly or ways you've been able to tackle that with success? Yeah, for sure. Implementation is so key. When I was teaching cultural planning, still living in Chicago, I asked my students to do a research project, pick a plan that's over five years old, and see if it's been implemented. And I was very disheartened with their results that cultural plans often don't get implemented, or the cultural plan itself doesn't have a framework for measuring how much impact did you make, how much did you get implemented. I'm very excited that uh, I've been able to make a lot of progress on implementation. So in Chicago, to create the cultural plan, we worked with a team of consultants, but I stayed, you know, I was still the project manager moving implementation forward. We did new grant programs. We revamped our grant making. We launched some neighborhood-based programs. We worked with a partner who, uh, Ingenuity, who did a whole, you know, a um, one of the implementation pieces was an arts ed plan for the Chicago Public Schools. So laying the groundwork during a long process of partners and how you might own that ownership, it, it's just so important to think about implementation all during the creation of a plan and, all, and specifically who will own that task. Who are the partners? You know, it's, it's difficult for just one agency to move everything forward. So to be inclusive of those partners during the process and to really prepare leadership for 
investment. This is going to take investment. This is going to take time. It's going to take some new legislation, perhaps. So right now, Metris is working with the city of Sacramento on an implementation project from their cultural plan. They did a cultural plan that came out about a year ago, the Creative Edge Plan, and in it are named actions to do. And one of the things they wanted to do was revamp their film office. I don't know if you remember the film Lady Bird filmed in Sacramento. Pretty big deal, Greta Gerwig. And through that experience, they found that they were understaffed, under-resourced, ill-equipped to handle a major studio production. And they felt like, oh, this is really something we need to step up and do better. And it came up as an issue during their cultural plan process. So now that they're implementing the plan, we're actually helping them do the creative industries analysis, work with the industry, look at how other cities have really been able to support local filmmakers and support outside productions because there's a huge economic impact. And then it also celebrates that place, helps people see this is an incredible place. It, it's, it's just ma many multifaceted benefits that will accrue to Sacramento by having a better, a better film office. So this implementation, to build it into your thinking in the plan, and then to go through, you know, allocate the funding, get the consultants in, or bring in the resources and the, the staff that you need. So in Boston, we created a percent for art program for public art as an implementation item of the cultural plan. And it took a while to set up the procedures, the policies to build it into the capital planning process. And um, it's now, you know, over oh, close to two million a year being spent on permanent public art as part of public buildings. So that can be so impactful. But it really does take a lot of time and resources to to, to move those implementation items forward. So Boston and Chicago, very special places and very large cities. I'm wondering how some of these ideas play out in communities of different size or scale. Yeah, now that I'm in Easton, Pennsylvania, and thinking about, you know, Pennsylvania has two big cities, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but the vast majority of people in the state live in small rural communities. And right now we're helping the State Arts Council create a new creative placemaking program focused on small rural communities because they often don't have the arts infrastructure or the funding to move the needle on having the arts be part of a solution of an entrenched community problem, whether it's public health or joblessness or opioid misuse, you know, there's a lot of issues people want to address and tackle. And the arts can really be part of the solution. So the metaphor that I always use, the, the, the comparison I make, is that implementing an arts-based strategy in a smaller community is very analogous to doing so in a neighborhood. So the city of Chicago, really big, you know Rogers Park. You know, Rogers Park is like a small town. It's as many miles away from downtown as a small town might be from a bigger community in a more rural state. And about 60,000 people, right? And so. about 60,000 people, right? So the the size of a neighborhood community in the city of Chicago or the city of Boston is very analogous to maybe a suburban community or a smaller community setting. But I think that those tools and those approaches and those strategies are often are, are very, very similar, very analogous 
What I think is exciting about working in the context of a smaller community is that you can make change pretty quickly, right? You can marshal goodwill and political will. You can gather up resources. It takes fewer resources. Often it takes fewer approvals. And you can really, one great program can really be transformative in a smaller community. I think that's what's really exciting. It's funny, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about my hometown of Galesburg, Illinois, and realizing the things I took for granted, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, that Galesburg has a very rich arts community. So things like uh, artists in residence, um, Galesburg Civic Arts Center. So as a kid, I was able to take classes from amazing artists, and new ideas were brought in because these artists and residents came from all over the world and would become part of the community. Some of them chose to stay. And yeah, just now I'm realizing how I took that for granted. And then as a professional, I can think about the role of leadership, formal or informal. You know, if people decide this is important and this is who we are, it can happen pretty easily. But I'm wondering if in some places, an arts and cultural plan may feel like a luxury. How do you overcome some of that? Yeah, this is something that arts and culture has an image problem. And sometimes I think it's language we use. Arts, oh, I'm not an artist. And you find out that they make these amazing quilts and have this tradition of quilting that's come generations and generations and generations. It's like or woodworking. Or woodworking, right? So I think, I think sometimes that language is a barrier and perception is a barrier. You know, I tell people that you don't have to be good at it to benefit from doing it. I'm learning how to play the ukulele. I'm an absolute beginner. I sound horrible, but it's challenging and it's fun. And when I actually make some progress, it's it, it's so satisfying. And so I think everybody has the impulse to engage in creative expression. You see this so genuinely among young people. And we do get very disconnected from it because, oh, well, I'm not an artist. I'm not an artist. Well, you could do something creative. You know, for some people, it might be gardening, it might be cooking, it might be, you know, creating fashions out of vintage clothing or something like that. And I think connecting people to the opportunity to engage in creative expression. I mean, many times in a smaller community, that barrier is is much lower because you do know the creative people in your community. You can go to, you know, in Easton, Pennsylvania, as a city of 36,000 people, we have a school of rock for kids. We have a little dance center. We've got a ceramic center. You know, we have, I tell people, we have one of everything. And there are opportunities to engage in creative expression, and it's really right there. I think in a bigger city, it might seem like, well, that's a downtown thing. That's a fancy. It's expensive. That's not for me. It's not for regular people. So I think we have a lot of perceptions that get in the way of allowing that creative energy to just flow as freely as it really wants to, to flow. I really love those examples you shared of how people create, even if they don't talk about it in, in you know, traditional artistic terms or view themselves as an artist. And I think there's a lot of movement around recognizing art's importance in quality of life, that it's kind of right up there with other necessities, mental health, physical health. Um, how do you approach those issues in your work? 
Yeah, I like to think of it in terms of infrastructure, right? We have food deserts and food security is so important. Access to clean water. We think of these as basic needs, but I think it's so important to think of creative expression as a basic human need as well. And how are we thinking about our infrastructure from this perspective? You know, we have schools in Chicago. The parks infrastructure is really a cultural infrastructure as well because they've fully leveraged the fact that they have all these buildings and they have arts partners in residence. So people can take lessons and classes and go to a performance at a neighborhood park, right? Very close by, right? They don't have to worry about going downtown or it being expensive. So this concept of infrastructure, human infrastructure, cultural infrastructure, there's a new book um, out that talks about social infrastructure and thinking about libraries and even streets and public buildings in this way, I think is incredibly important. And I worry that planners are missing this. They don't think of it in these terms. It's really what cultural planning is all about to think about planning for the fact that we need cultural in, culture in our lives. We need creative expression. You know, you're, you're, and it's not only about people who are past the basic needs, right? Even people who are the, mo the most downtrodden, the most difficult circumstances, they need to have a glimmer of hope. Where does that come from? Does it come from singing hymns in church, from music? Does it come from seeing a flower, a little piece of beauty in your world? I think it's a basic human need, especially when, when things are tough and difficult. You, you need that inspiration more so than when everything is fine or it's a wealthier community. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that... It's easy to recognize or appreciate uh, in the past, but we forget to carry it forward to the present and future. Like different people can appreciate protest songs or, um, you know, murals in Northern Ireland or, you know, the fact that sometimes creative expression is the only way to deal with something or get a message across and so I'm thinking now about issues of equity, inclusion, and representation um, as it ties to this idea that we kind of don't appreciate the here and now. We can appreciate it if it happened in the past. So have you thought about these issues and been able to bring some of it into your work? Yeah, absolutely. I think cultural planning is a way to investigate these issues of deep inequities and systemic inequities through culture. These issues play out in, in big, acute ways in our cultural infrastructure, especially the private cultural infrastructure. If you think about sort of the mainstream, large, private institutions, they might feel really foreboding and you have to take a journey and you have to buy a ticket and you have to dress up and you have to behave a certain way. You know, this exacerbates lots of inequities of race and class and tradition and, and background and economics. 
And so thinking about cultural infrastructure in terms of how do you democratize that access to creative expression, that, uh, that democratizing opportunity and the abil ability to pursue creative expression. I think that's what's so important about public infrastructure, about libraries, which are in every neighborhood, about parks that are in every neighborhood, or park district buildings, or schools, and really thinking about how do you leverage this public investment as a way to remove barriers to access, remove systemic inequities, and help people really gain access to opportunity. That's really what it's all about, is not providing the same thing to everyone, but really meeting people where they're at. Equity is about recognizing that not everybody starts at the same place. Some people start, you know, with a lot of advantages and privileges, and a lot of people haven't had that. They haven't had that exposure to opportunity or lessons or classes and, and making things accessible and free and nearby and you don't have to make a big journey is a huge way to be that we can begin to address that people don't all start out with the same kinds of, of access and opportunities. I think culture is a huge way of uh, addressing inequities and helping people understand um, that engaging in creative expression is a way to move people forward. As you were talking, I'm mindful of um, the sort of check the box or tokenism that sometimes happens. Like it's one thing to have a fabulous downtown concert series, you know, in the in the vein of world music it's quite another to get out of downtown into the neighborhoods and really elevate the voices the way people celebrate um, the way they express themselves and as sort of a, a counter to the the big fancy downtown event i was at a conference recently where in between sessions you would hear from spoken word artists there was a woman at another event who is a classically trained cellist, but performs um, contemporary rap music on the cello, in particular trap music. And you know, you have your boxed lunch and your panel speakers, but the impact and the power mm -hmm. of hearing from these, these artists, I immediately acknowledge someone took the time to think about embedding those very ideas, those very expressions in something that's typically rather predictable and rote. Are there other opportunities you've been a part of or observed along these lines? Because I think some of this work is hard and big, but some of it's small. It's just having a different approach to, or a lens perhaps, of embedding creativity into almost every aspect of uh, civic life. Yeah, I have had some cool examples of that. And one of the artists in residence in Boston uh, did taiko drumming, and she wanted to work with seniors. And so she was partnered with a senior center, and seniors, you know, you guys are young, so you don't necessarily know this, but you'll get the more invisible you become. You just fade into the background. And elderly people feel invisible, they have diminished mobility, and so the drum, taiko drumming, which as you know is loud, <laughs> if you've ever heard it, it, teaching seniors to do taiko drumming was really about reclaiming their presence, reclaiming their voice, 
empowering them. And they staged a march through a particularly dangerous intersection. If you think about a walkable city and pedestrian crossings and seniors who become invisible and who are kind of slow, how to reclaim their presence and their power and their and their space. You know, when they staged a, a march through dangerous intersections while doing taiko drumming. And so this is a way to, and it is about planning and it is about expression and it is about sort of reclaiming um this balance between people and places and pedestrians and cars and elders and and everybody else and so i think it was a particularly effective example of how this sort of creative expression could help people really address sort of a small issue uh but it, but an important issue you know pedestrian uh, you know people in boston drive uh, yes, you've heard the, the, the stereotypes and it, it's a problem, right? You know, pedestrian clashes and they're trying to do this vision zero plan. So if you think about transportation planning and vision zero. Oh, would it ever occur to a transportation planner to think about taiko drumming and seniors? No, it would not. I don't but think it's so. so effective, right? So it's just something it's not expensive. It's not difficult. And it's completely outside the box. Right, it can really wake people up. If you think about taiko taiko drums, it wakes you up. And it's a puts great you in a different upper body space. workout. It's a great upper body workout. Yeah. So this like multiple, multiple, multiple gains from trying things that are innovative and outside the box. Uh, it's really exciting to push planning in new directions in this way. I love that example, and I'm gonna try to steal it for sure. We call it replicate, by the way, <laughs> not steal. <laughs> So most planners, you know, the the personal is the professional and vice versa. I'm wondering how you got into this work, um, what inspires you, places you've been, experiences you've had, even, you know, after hours, if there's things uh, you wanted to share. Yeah, I think that the the germination of my planning brain happened, started really young. I grew up in the burbs, but I initially grew up in a neighborhood that was all pedestrian. It was row houses, all connected by sidewalks with no streets interrupting. So it was like this free flow of, you know, you had access to a hundred friends without ever having to cross a street. And so it was, even though it was in the suburbs, it was very pedestrian friendly, very kid friendly spot. And that was great. And then we moved to somewhere where I became a bicycle kid because we were a little bit further, you know, removed from accessible things. And one of the great things I could do is get on my bike, get to the forest preserve system and ride my bike all the way up, you know, from Niles, Illinois, up to the Botanic Garden. So for me, that sort of bike mobility was this key really opened up my world. But my perspective is also shaped by my background. My mother was from Panama in Central America. And so going to another country at a young age and seeing a completely different kind of city, a very economically divided, racially divided society, really opened my eyes to, oh, this, you know, we're not Niles anymore, not Niles, Illinois anymore. It's really different. And then the other, I think, very formative thing for me was my dad was from New York. And every year we piled in the car and drove across country and visited grandma in Staten Island, New York. And I so distinctly remember, you know, 1970s Staten Island commercial streets 
all boarded up, all disinvested, like a complete wreck. And I was struck by that. I, I mean, you know, I'll never forget, like, what happened to this place? It is just boarded up, graffitied, messed up, empty. And I, I'll just never forget how striking that was to see. And so I think having a variety of experiences as a young person in different places, moving around, seeing different cities, it really, I think, planted the seeds for being an urban planner and being curious about place and why is this place beautiful and thriving and why is this place completely disinvested and, uh, you know, a ru- basically a ruin so I've always been fascinated by that kind of thing. And I continue to travel. I love to travel. I see the world through. After you go to planning school and become a planner, I think you you just can't help but see the world through a planner's eyes. I love street furniture. I love to see how infrastructure is integrated in multimodal ways in different cities. I, I just, I'm such a nerd about it. Even though I don't work in transportation planning, I'm always interested to see, oh, it's a great separated protected bike lane and it's completely integrated, like in Germany, you know, completely integrated with the infrastructure. So I absolutely love that. So yeah, I'm definitely like a city traveler versus a beach, lay on the beach and do nothing. And it's not interesting to me. And I think one of my favorite cities that have been to recently is Edinburgh, Scotland. Amazing, you know, historic and interesting. And I went during the Fringe Festival and just bursting with culture. Every nook and cranny of the city just alive with culture. That's a city with a, an energy that that grabs you immediately, I would say. Yeah, I'm a giant fan. I would go back at the drop of a hat and I would recommend any planner going and checking it out. Awesome city. And so the other thing that really colors my point of view is I, for 15 years, was an architecture docent at the Chicago Architecture Foundation. Now it's called the Architecture Center. And so I am looking at things through those eyes always, looking at the building fabric and when, what, what time is this place? You know, sort of that Kevin Lynch of sort of what era is this place from? And what has survived and what has changed and are things being reused and things being erased and covered up and coming back to Chicago frequently seeing how the city has changed so much so quickly. So I think those those really color my point of view in terms of being a planner and then being a cultural planner on top of it and seeing those kind of layers of time and layers of culture and how culture manifests in places. You know, for me, that's an endless fascination. I really appreciate all of your insights and stories you've shared on this topic. If people want to learn more, either resources you have, things you've read recently that inspire you, or um, where people can find you directly, let us know. Yeah, so Metris Arts Consulting has a handle on every channel. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and we're always posting. We love to share studies, reports, things that inspire us, things that we see. The Metris website, which is metrisarts.com, has a blog. So I'm a frequent contributor to our blog. So my insights from my travels and my thoughts about cultural planning or thoughts about culture uh, are a great way to, to follow what we're up to. And then I also am on personally, you know, at Julie Burroughs on 
Twitter, I would say, is my most frequent social channel. I'm still getting up to speed on Instagram. I'm working on it. Um, and Facebook for me is more of like a personal kind of um, platform for expression, but certainly love to share and engage with people on social on social networks. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. This was a blast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org. 